All right. Well, we've gone through a lot already this morning. So grab your message notes. We are going to jump in uh, to this morning's message. Um, if you're new here, welcome. Uh, this year, we are talking about what it means to follow after Jesus. And all year long, our focus is not going to be our only topic, but all year long, we're talking about this journey of discipleship. So we're kicking off 2024 with five kind of messages that give us an overview of what it means to follow after Jesus. And we said from the very beginning that it begins with a great call. Jesus says, come and follow me. And that's an invitation to come and be with him. Next, we saw that it's, uh, discipleship is rooted in a great commandment. That commandment is to love God with all you've got and to love your neighbor as yourself. Next, we said that the journey of discipleship is a call to be a citizen of a new kingdom with a new king, and that is to serve Jesus and to serve him in his uh, kingdom of God. And today we want to talk about the journey of discipleship means that we are moved by or motivated by in all of our life by a great compassion. So that's what we're going to talk about today, compassion. But before we do that and jump into that, uh, the heart of the message, I want to invite you to go on a little journey with me to the ancient city of Corinth, uh, where we're going to see a church that was living out compassion in their world. And as we're introduced to the church in Corinth, I want to introduce you to an early follower of Christ there in that church at Corinth. His name is Erastus. He's actually mentioned three times in the New Testament, which is kind of a big deal. Um, And yet I'm guessing not too many of you know much about the Erastus that we read about in the Bible. And I say that because I didn't know hardly anything about him until I got a chance to visit his hometown um, earlier this year. So Paul writes the letter of Romans. He writes Romans from Corinth to the people in Rome. And he mentions a few different people that are kind of partners in ministry. And one of those is this guy by the name of Erastus, who Paul says is a city director of public works, right? Now, here's what you need to know about Erastus. Erastus is kind of a unique and I think a really memorable name. But for a long time, you did not find Erastus's name in any of the other literature outside of the Bible in kind of the, the Corinthian literature of the day. That actually led a lot of Bible critics to, to raise the question, maybe Paul is just making this guy up. After all, the name Erastus is not a super Christian name, and uh, he would have been very wealthy. As one of the city officials, he would have probably been one of the richer people in all of Corinth. Bible critics said, well, you know, the, the early church was made up predominantly of the poor and, and former slaves. So to have like a city official in the church of Corinth just didn't seem right. They said Paul probably made this guy up. That is until several years ago, they discovered this little archaeological site. There's a picture of us standing next to it. And that inscription on the ground says this. It says, uh, I, Erastus, the city official, laid this pavement at my own expense. So they have this road that went through Corinth and Erastus puts his name on it as the city official who had so much money that he paid for it. And the tradition was when a person left that, uh, that office or that, that, that position, they would donate something to the city. And so Erastus donates this road as he pulls back from his work as a city official. 
So in some ways, that picture validates the the accuracy of Paul and the New Testament. And yet still, there is something really strange about Erastus as a follower of Jesus. You see, at that time, Corinth was a fascinating place. It was one of the wealthier cities in all of the the world, and it gained its wealth primarily as a main stop along along several uh, shipping routes along the Mediterranean. The most prominent feature in Corinth at that time was the Temple of Aphrodite's. Aphrodite's, you may recognize that name. She was the goddess of love. And Aphrodite's temple there in Corinth employed a thousand slaves primarily as prostitutes. These women would have had to shave their head as a a sign of what they did and who they were and who they belonged to. They became one of the main attractions of the city, especially for sailors who would stop over there in Corinth and would want to pay tribute to the local religion. Well, Today, that ancient temple is gone. It used to sit right up there on the top of that hill or the Acropolis. That's where the temple stood. Today, it's, it's gone. There, there's no um, real ruins of it. But what you see is anywhere you go in this ancient city of Corinth, you've got that mountain kind of looking down on you. You feel like you're always in the shadow of the temple of Aphrodite's. In fact, this picture right here is the city center known as the Agora. The Apostle Paul actually stood trial right in that city square right there, and he did it in the shadow of this mountain. Well, While we can't prove this without a shadow of a doubt, many people and scholars believe that uh, our friend Erastus was likely connected to the temple of Aphrodite's. But maybe not in the way that you would expect. You see, I said his name is kind of unique and even kind of memorable because it's based on the Greek word eros. Eros. Eros, you would recognize from our English word erotic. Eros was the god of sex, and there was a prominent, uh, prominent statue for the god Eros there on the top of the mountain. And so the, the literal translation of the name Erastus basically equates in English to something like sexy boy or sexy man. Sexy boy, yeah. And so if you think that through a little bit, you think to yourself, what kind of mother names their child sexy boy, right? Unless, unless perhaps his mother was one of the workers from up on the mountain at the temple of Aphrodite's, which means surely Erastus never knew his father, and likely he would have been raised by the community of women up there at the temple. Well, maybe this is, uh, maybe because of that connection with the, the temple, he grows up and he becomes one of the city officials, one of the wealthiest people, so wealthy that he can literally pay for the road to be paved through town. But somehow, Erastus hears the good news of the gospel, and Erastus turns his life over to become a follower of Jesus. Whether that was through Paul's ministry or something else, we don't know. But here's what we do know. Erastus goes all in as a follower of Jesus. And this guy known by the name of Sexy Boy starts to become a missionary companion of Paul. And Sexy Boy starts to take the message out around the the Roman Empire. And you say, hey, that's interesting. Uh, We actually see he's mentioned three times in the Bible, as I said. And you say, that's interesting, but what does that have to do with compassion? Because compassion is our topic today. Well, we know that the church in Corinth, like many 
many churches, but especially the church in Corinth, we know that it included many former slaves that were a part of that early church. And here's what I want you to try to imagine. I want you to try to imagine when some of those women who were prostitutes heard the message of the gospel and wanted to start to begin to follow after Jesus, they faced a problem. They wanted a new life. They wanted to be welcomed into the church. But they were property of the temple. They were owned by the priestess and the people up there at the temple of Aphrodite. What could they do unless, unless someone from the church purchased their freedom, redeemed them is the word that we use, even if it was at a great price. Well, you think to yourself, what kind of person, first of all, has the money and the clout to climb up that mountain and to redeem or purchase back some of these women. Maybe it was a little boy who was raised by some of these women who came to understand God's compassion because of the grace that he'd received in his life and the way that Christ had paid for his ransom, and so he wanted to do that for others. You say, where are you getting this from? In the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul actually addresses former slaves that are a part of the church now. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says this. He says, for the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Isn't that beautiful? Now you're the Lord's freed person. He says, you were bought at a price, so do not become slaves of human beings. You actually see the same thing in chapter 6, where Paul specifically is addressing people coming out of sexual sin and even prostitutes, and he says this, you were bought at a great price, therefore honor God with your bodies. Now immediately, when we hear we were bought at a price, we think of the price that Christ paid on our behalf, and that's surely what that means, Christ's work on the cross. But we also see that there is literally a meaning for these people that out of the compassion of someone's heart, they were bought back and received their freedom. But here's what I love. It's not just Erastus that shows that kind of compassion in Corinth. We actually see it in the Apostle Paul himself. Sometimes people forget how compassionate the Apostle Paul himself can be. Because he writes to the Corinthians, and in 1 Corinthians, if you're familiar with the letter, you know that he has this section where he talks about women wearing head coverings in worship. And maybe you've read that, and if you're like me, you've always kind of wondered, why does Paul include so much information on, on women covering their heads when they come to worship? To me, it's always seemed kind of legalistic, kind of exclusive, like, you know, not for everyone, unless you know the, the context of that. And it was, in fact, just the opposite it was Paul's way of compassionately opening the doors and welcoming everybody in. Because if you're a former prostitute who had her head shaved and you come into the church, everybody's looking at you, unless all of the women put head coverings on. And so suddenly no one sees if you have long hair or short hair. And he just makes a statement that everybody is equal at the foot of the cross, right? And so that's just one example of the kind of compassion that we see that helped to launch the early church to explode across the Roman Empire and become literally the dominant religion in about 250 years. But here's the thing. They didn't dominate by force. They dominated 
by compassion. In fact, let me just read this to you. This is from Pulitzer Prize winning historian Rodney Stark. Rodney Stark is uh, not a pastor. He is not even really a a, a Christian. He's a a world-class historian who studied these times, and this is what he says about the church in places like Corinth, but really all across the Roman Empire. He says, to cities filled with homelessness and impoverished, Christianity offered charity and hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered immediate basis for attachment. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded family. To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for solidarity. And to cities faced with the epidemics, fires, and earthquakes, Christianity offered effective nursing. No wonder the early Christians were so warmly received in Rome. They, what they brought was not simply a movement, but a new culture. And that culture was all about the Jesus way, which is the way of compassion. And so what we want to do today with the remaining short time that we have together is we want to just uh, look at as we seek to be people that follow after Jesus. We've said that what we want to do is we want to be with Jesus. We want to spend time with him. We want to become like him, and we want to do the things that Jesus did. That's what a disciple is defined by, right? And so uh, as we do that, we want to talk about what it would like be like to imitate Jesus in this area of compassion. So let's talk about the compassion of Christ and how we can uh, follow after that. So first of all, compassion in the New Testament, and we've talked about this through the years, is kind of a unique word or kind of a special word. Um, In Latin, the word compassion literally means come with, to suffer with, to suffer with a person. In other words, I'm going to come alongside in such a way that if this person is suffering, I am going to have compassion. I'm going to suffer with, come alongside them. In Greek, there's a word. Uh, it's the Greek word splagizomai. Splagizomai. That's what often gets translated as compassion. It literally means, as you can see on the screen there, the stirring in your intestines or the stirring in your guts. That's why we see that Jesus is is moved with compassion, right? Because there's this stirring, this splagizomai. So what I want to do is I want to just walk through some examples of Jesus demonstrating this kind of splagizomai, this kind of compassion. Because as people who want to be covered in the dust of our rabbi, we want to follow so closely to Jesus that we're covered with his dust. If he's a person of compassion, we want to be that way as well. And so I want us to look at three examples. And the first one is this, is that Jesus shows compassion to people who were considered outsiders or outcasts. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but the neglected, the forgotten, the oppressed tend to be people that draw out compassion in Jesus. So our first scripture is from Mark chapter 1, if you want to follow along there. Mark chapter 1. Let me just remind you, this is right after Jesus has called uh, his disciples. So one of the very first things that his disciples, when they come to be with them, come to be with him, one of the first things they see is what we're about to read here. And it says this in Mark 1.40. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him, on his knees. If you are willing, you can make me clean. So this man comes and falls at Jesus' feet, says, you can make me clean. Jesus was moved with compassion. Jesus was indignant. Jesus was filled with compassion. And he reached out his hand and he touched the man. He said, I am willing. 
he said. Be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was cleansed. Now, when we read that, especially if you've been around Jesus a little bit, that's, you know, it's an impressive healing, but it's kind of a run-of-the-mill miracle for him to just heal a guy with leprosy. I mean, it's great and all, but it doesn't seem real out of the ordinary for what Jesus does. Yet for uh, what Jesus does show here is an extraordinary compassion for a person that would have been considered unclean and treated as an outcast. Leprosy, as you probably know in that time, was considered extraordinarily contagious. And so lepers not only had to stay off by themselves, they had to stay away from contact with people. But if they actually came into contact with, with other people, they had to shout, unclean, I'm unclean, right? Could you imagine that? And yet Jesus kind of fights through that. In fact, I read a book this last year on the leper colony in Molokai in Hawaii. Fascinating story um, there. And, and one of the things after reading that you see is like the, uh, the isolation and the stigma is almost worse than the disease for some of these lepers. But we see that Jesus cuts through that kind of thinking by actually not just healing him, but reaching out and touching him. And not only does he heal his disease, but you imagine he must restore his dignity in such a powerful way as well. Now, if you think about the compassion that Jesus shows, he often, um, uh, he often rejected, uh, or um, the ones that, that others rejected are often the ones that received Jesus's compassion. People like children or women or Samaritans or people with disabilities or people with a sinful past. And so often what you see is Jesus is there giving his time, giving his value, giving his contact, bringing physical healing, but also bringing emotional, spiritual, and dignity to the these people uh, that were suffering, uh, uh, that were suffering for, for something, one thing or another. You know, as I think about this ministry to the outcast, I, there's something that will always come to my mind because I remember um, experiencing this in almost a palpable way. It's, it's about 20 years ago now, but it was, was when uh, HIV was really sweeping across Southern Africa and the AIDS pandemic was, was just really having a devastating effects in Southern Africa. And I felt as clearly as I've ever felt in, in my life, the, the voice of God say, Glenn, that you need to come alongside the church in Southern Africa to help strengthen them in this fight. I, I thought that meant that Janie and I were going to move there as, as missionaries. So we actually went to explore things and we went to this little country of Lesotho in Southern Africa. At the time, they had an HIV rate of about 35 to 40 percent uh, people in, infected um, with AIDS um, or HIV at least. And so it was definitely devastating. We got there and we ended up partnering with World Vision and realized that there were people that were doing great work there and, and a church like ours supporting uh, organizations like that is sometimes the best thing that we can do. But while we were there, we visited a number of different ministries connected with World Vision there, and including uh, we were up at kind of their, their, their compound, and it, was, it wasn't a celebration, but it was kind of a whole big community event. And when that community event was over, they invited us to go to the Widows Support Group, the Widows Support Group. And this was not in the main part of the camp. This was kind of off in the back, kind of this disconnected room and you went into this room with just a dirt floor, no electric lights, and there must have been, I don't know, 10 or 12 widows in this group, all of whom had lost uh, their husbands to AIDS. And I imagine every single one of them was, was HIV positive at this point. And I remember when we walked into the room, first of all, they were blown away that we would even come in because they were being isolated. And so just crossing the door was something. And then as we heard their stories, I remember I said to them, 
our church wants to help with this. By the way, I didn't know that our church wanted to help at that point, but I'm like, our church is going to help with this. I didn't know what it was going to look like. Um, That actually ended up being, um, we did some training and provided uh, medical supplies to do home health visits um, for people. It was one of the first initiatives that they did. But I remember sitting with this group of women who just were blown away that people would come and and care and, and visit because all they had been is pushed away and isolated. And I remember thinking at that time, I think I understand what it would have been like to be a leper in the time of Jesus. And so it's good for us to have compassion on those kinds of situations. In fact, there's a a great verse. When I think of the compassion of Jesus, uh, a scripture that I always love is Proverbs 31, 8 and 9. In fact, parents, this is a great verse to memorize, a great verse to memorize with your kids. Uh, Proverbs 31, 8 and 9 says this, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. And I don't know about you, but I read a verse like that. I am so thankful for people like Nyla and Hannah who stood up here and said, you know what, our high school students want to reach out uh, to to kids and adults with special needs in our community and be involved with the the night to shine because we want to speak up for those who can't speak for themselves. That's why I love to think about the family first ministry coming alongside families that that want to foster and adopt kids in in crisis situations. And I think about that. It's why I think about Jax from Directions Medical Clinic because if there is a group that cannot speak for themselves. It's the unborn, right? How can they? Created, precious to God, but no voice. So therefore, they should be precious to his followers, because if Jesus shows compassion, we show compassion as well. You know, I don't know if you've noticed this, you probably have, but compassion is kind of on a decline in our world these days. It's just less and less something that we see. In fact, there was a study that was done. This study is actually probably about 10 years old now, but I think it's probably only progressed. A study out of the University of Michigan uh, that studied compassion, and they basically came to this premise that we're becoming a society that cares less. And what they did is they studied uh, different things in the culture, and they said that since the 1980s, compassion has decreased by what they said was about 40% in those times. And here's how they measured that. They uh, measured how people responded to statements like, I try to understand people better by seeing things from their perspective, right? That's a compassionate thing to do, to try to understand where somebody else is coming from. Uh, They measured people's response to a question like this. I have tender or concerned feelings for people less fortunate than me. The misfortune of others bothers me. The misfortune of people different bothers me. So 40% less of the people studied answered with compassionate answers to things like that, which led them to this discussion. So what's happening to compassion? And that's a, you know, an interesting thing for all of us to think about, especially as Christians. But they talked a little bit about the rise of technology and specifically even the rise of social media, not to pick on social media, but just think about where our culture has come in these last 40 years since they did this study. For one, we've become a culture that has become far more obsessed with ourselves, right? How do I know that? The rise of the selfie, right? The rise. (laughs) 
Social media in and of itself is all about likes, views, clicks, um, which are all related to me, myself, and I. You know, you think about, you know, we become more obsessed with ourselves. You even have like people that travel across the world to visit these like world-class uh, uh, monuments and historical, uh, historical sites. I think we have a picture that goes with that. Maybe we don't have a picture of that. It's Janny and I taking a selfie in front of like some historical site in uh, Corinth. Um, but you see that everywhere you go, right? People aren't there to see the sites. They're there to get the selfie of themselves in, uh, in front of the site. We become obsessed with ourselves. The second thing we see is that people are overwhelmingly, or this overwhelming exposure to suffering has desensitized us. So I heard it described like this. Imagine you're on social media and you're kind of surfing through here and you're scrolling through and you're like, hey, there's a new recipe for guacamole. And then you're like, like, oh, there's my favorite football player and his new girlfriend. And, and then there's a famine in Africa. And then there's this super funny cat video. And then there's, you know, hostages in the, the Middle East. And you scroll through all these things. And it's so much information, you can't even kind of separate it out. And there's so much information that we've allowed ourselves to become desensitized and even numb. We've pushed back. That's my. The third thing we see is that when there's a lack of personal, face-to-face, person-to-person interaction, it's a lot easier to not care. So again, for instance, if I'm scrolling through my social media and I see a post from someone, even someone I know, that says, hey, pray for me, I lost my job. You know, I may feel a little something about that. I might feel bad. I might shoot up a little prayer, a little something like that. But if I'm sitting right next to someone, or I'm sitting across from someone at coffee, and I'm sitting next to someone at church, and they say to me, hey, I lost my job. Can you pray for me? It's a whole different thing, right? Then there's all kinds of different appropriate responses that are far more meaningful than, you know, emoji praying hands or something like that. And and so we see that the compassion is on a decline. And yet as Jesus followers, we're supposed to be people of compassion. So let's look at our second example, which is that Jesus shows that compassion will always move us to action, even when it's inconvenient and even when it's costly. So our next scripture is from Mark chapter 6, if you want to look at that. Mark chapter 6, what I'm about to read comes right after Jesus had sent his disciples out to do ministry on their own. Been a really hectic time for them, a hectic time for uh, Jesus of of ministry and healing and teaching. They also just had gotten the news that Jesus's cousin and dear friend and partner in ministry, John the Baptist, had been killed. So this was a stressful time for Jesus and the disciples. And in Mark 6.30, it says this, The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. Then get this. Because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, Come with me by yourself to a quiet place and get some rest. So Jesus recognizes that these guys are tired. They need a little vacation day. They need a little me time. They need a little self-care. And so in verse 32, it says, they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. They're going to get a day at the spa, a day of vacation by the beach. Verse 33, but many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. I'm like, Jesus, you need a faster boat. But the people ran on their feet. They got there before Jesus did. So when Jesus landed, he saw a large crowd. And what happened? He had compassion on them. Splagizomai. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. 
And what I want us to see there is, first of all, uh, Jesus' compassion moves him to action. It doesn't say that he felt so bad that he shot up a quick prayer for them and then went about his business. No, it says he, he, he was moved to compassion and that compassion moved him to action, even when it was inconvenient and costly. He pulled away from his well-deserved time away. And they deserved a break there, right? But he's moved by compassion. So he begins to teach them. We see that he heals them. It leads to the feeding of the 5,000. Now, this is not me saying that there are never times that we need Sabbath or times of rest or times to care for ourselves physically, emotionally, spiritually. But what I am saying is that compassion, Jesus' compassion, will often come at inconvenient times. It'll come at sometimes the very worst time. And yet we see that Jesus models that compassion moves people to action. It's what you see in the story of the, the, the Good Samaritan, where, where the Samaritan who's on his way from one place to another is so moved with compassion, it says that he goes down into the, the ditch to care for the man who'd been robbed. Even when the, the priest and the Levite had already walked by them, he, he recognizes that it's inconvenient, but he goes anyways. Or you think about Jesus. There's that, that episode when he heals the woman that was bleeding for 12 years. And if you know the story, he's on his way. Way, Jesus is to, to heal the daughter of this big shot synagogue leaders, uh, uh, the guy, guy by the name of Jairus. And Jairus says, my daughter's sick. Jesus, will you come and heal him? So Jesus starts to come and the crowd starts to follow him. Jesus is on his way to somewhere very important, but he's touched in the, the crowd and he actually stops, turns his attention, heals this woman who'd been bleeding. And in the meantime, Jairus's daughter dies. Now, Jesus is going to raise her from the the dead, but we see that even in the most inconvenient time, Jesus was willing to stop and to show compassion. And so before we move on to kind of our our last point here, the question that I want to ask you and the question that I honestly am asking myself is, do I have margin in my life to show compassion, right? Do I have the time and the energy or is the siren cry of my phone or my computer or the busyness of life and family and job, or even just the greed of trying to climb some ladder uh, that makes me, feel like, makes me feel like I'm too busy to show compassion. How do I rearrange my time? How do I rearrange my priorities that if I want to follow after my rabbi, my life looks like my rabbi? Third thing we see is that Jesus teaches us compassion for people caught in their sins. Jesus shows us compassion for people caught in their sins. We actually see uh, Jesus show compassion on the sinful all kinds of uh, times. But what I want to do is I want to just remind you of perhaps his famous, most famous story. And I'll just close with this. Um, the, the most famous story that Jesus tells is the story about a young man who goes to his father and pays his father the ultimate insult by taking his inheritance from him while the father's still alive. It's basically saying, I don't need a relationship with you. I just need your stuff. He takes his money, uh, goes away. The father gives him the money and the, the son goes away and he begins to blow the money on everything that the father would have hated, right? All the stuff that the father would have, would have hated. And so it would have been so easy for the, the father to just write that kid off. But the father can't help the way that he feels about his son. And he's got this feeling that if the son could just come home, we could start over again. If the son would just come home, we could make things right and we could go forward from here. 
So it's actually almost kind of a sad picture because what happens is this dignified father goes out and it says every day he watched and he waited for the son to come home. You want to say to the father, hey, too much water under the bridge. Too much stuff has passed. Go about your business. But every day he goes and he watches and he waits. And in Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells us this. It says that the father sees off in the distance this little cloud of of dust coming his way. And it says that the father, while it was still a long way off, saw him and was filled with compassion. Splagizomai strikes again in him. And he ran to his son and he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. He was so moved with compassion, not just for the outcast, not just for the, the, when it was inconvenient, but he was moved with compassion for this young man who was caught in his sin. And so as we close today, I just want to ask you this question. Is there someone that you need to run to? Is there someone that you need to follow the example of our Father and let your heart be filled with such a compassion that maybe they're suffering, maybe they're hurting, maybe they're lonely, maybe they are trapped in their sin, but you know what they need? They don't need someone standing up in judgment looking down on them. They need someone to come alongside them, to suffer with them, to be moved with compassion. And so my question to myself and my question to you today is who do you need to run to? We want to be covered in the dust of our rabbi. You think of the the things that were done by that early church because they didn't stay inside their church, but they moved out with compassion. And we want to be those kind of people. God, I thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the teaching of your son, Jesus Christ, who came not to lord things over us, but came to demonstrate compassion. So I pray for myself and my brothers and sisters that we would have that kind of compassion as well, that as we follow Jesus, that we would be motivated to to live as he lived. We commit these things to you. We commit, Lord, to live with compassion this week. In your name, Jesus, amen.